Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 2 What is to be noted is that even in London, having had time to take a reflective view, poor Flora was far from being certain as to the true inwardness of her violent dismissal. She felt the humiliation of it with an almost maddened resentment. "'And did you enlighten her on the point?' I ventured to ask. Mrs. Fine moved her shoulder with a philosophical acceptance of all the necessities which ought not to be. "'Something had to be said,' she murmured. She had told the girl enough to make her come to the right conclusion by herself. "'And she did?' "'Yes, of course. She isn't a goose,' retorted Mrs. Fine tartly. "'Then her education is completed,' I remarked with some bitterness. "'Don't you think she ought to be given a chance?' Mrs. Fine understood my meaning. Not this one, she snapped in a quite feminine way. It's all very well for you to plead, but I... I do not plead, I simply asked. It seemed natural to ask what you thought. It's what I feel that matters, and I can't help my feelings. You may guess, she added in a softer tone, that my feelings are mostly concerned with my brother. We were very fond of each other. The difference of our ages was not very great. I suppose you know he is a little younger than I am. He was a sensitive boy. He had the habit of brooding. It is no use concealing from you that neither of us was happy at home. You have heard, no doubt. Yes? Well, I was made still more unhappy and hurt. I don't mind telling you that. He made his way to some distant relations of our mother's people, who I believe were not known to my father at all. I don't wish to judge their action. I interrupted Mrs. Fine here. I had heard. Fine was not very communicative in general, but he was proud of his father-in-law, Carly and Anthony, the poet, you know. Proud of his celebrity, without approving of his character. It was on that account I strongly suspected that he seized with avidity upon the theory of poetical genius being allied to madness, which he got hold of in some idiotic book everybody was reading a few years ago. It struck him as being truth itself, illuminating like the sun. He adopted it devoutly. He bored me with it sometimes. Once, just to shut him up, I asked quietly if this theory, which he regarded as so incontrovertible, did not cause him some uneasiness about his wife and the dear girls. He transfixed me with a pitying stare and requested me, in his deep, solemn voice, to remember the well-established fact that genius was not transmissible. I said only, Oh, isn't it? and he thought he had silenced me by an unanswerable argument. But he continued to talk of his glorious father-in-law, and it was in the course of that conversation that he told me how, when the Liverpool relations of the poet's late wife naturally addressed themselves to him in considerable concern, suggesting a friendly consultation as to the boy's future, the incensed but always refined poet wrote in answer a letter of mere polished badinage which offended mortally the Liverpool people. This witty outbreak of what was in fact mortification and rage appeared to them so heartless that they simply kept the boy. They let him go to sea, not because he was in their way, but because he begged hard to be allowed to go. "'Oh, you do know,' said Mrs. Fine after a pause. "'Well, I felt myself very much abandoned. In his choice of life, so extraordinary, so unfortunate, I may say. I was very much grieved.' I should have liked him to have been distinguished. 
or at any rate to remain in the social sphere where we could have had common interests, acquaintances, thoughts. Don't think that I am estranged from him, but the precise truth is that I do not know him. I was most painfully affected when he was here by the difficulty of finding a single topic we could discuss together. While Mrs. Fine was talking of her brother, I let my thoughts wander out of the room to little Fine, who, by leaving me alone with his wife, had, so to speak, entrusted his domestic peace to my honour. Well then, Mrs. Fine, does it not strike you that it would be reasonable, under the circumstances, to let your brother take care of himself? And suppose I have grounds to think that he can't take care of himself in a given instance. She hesitated in a funny, bashful manner, which roused my interest. Then, sailors, I believe, are very susceptible, she added with forced assurance. I burst into a laugh, which only increased the coldness of her observing stare. They are immensely, hopelessly. My dear Mrs. Vine, you had better give it up. It only makes your husband miserable. And I am quite miserable too. It is really our first difference. Regarding Mr. Barrel, I asked. Regarding everything. It's really intolerable that this girl should be the occasion. I think he really ought to give way. She turned her chair round a little, and picking up the book I had been reading in the morning, began to turn the leaves absently. Her eyes being off me, I felt I could allow myself to leave the room. Its atmosphere had become hopeless for little Fine's domestic peace. You may smile, but in the solemn all things are solemn. I had enough sagacity to understand that. I slipped out into the porch. The dog was slumbering at Fine's feet. The muscular little man, leaning on his elbow and gazing over the fields, presented a forlorn figure. He turned his head quickly, but seeing I was alone, relapsed into his moody contemplation of the green landscape. I said loudly and distinctly, I've come out to smoke a cigarette, and sat down near him on the little bench. Then, lowering my voice, "'Tolerance is an extremely difficult virtue,' I said. "'More difficult for some than heroism. "'More difficult than compassion.' I avoided looking at him. I knew well enough that he would not like this opening. General ideas were not to his taste. He mistrusted them. I lighted a cigarette, not that I wanted to smoke, but to give another moment to the consideration of the advice.' the diplomatic advice I had made up my mind to bowl him over with, and I continued in subdued tones. I have been led to make these remarks by what I have discovered since you left us. I suspected from the first, and now I am certain. What your wife cannot tolerate in this affair is Mr. Barrel being what she is. He made a movement, but I kept my eyes away from him and went on steadily. That is, her being a woman... I have some idea of Mrs. Fine's mental attitude towards society with its injustices, with its atrocious or ridiculous conventions. As against them there is no audacity of action, your wife's mind refuses to sanction. The doctrine which I imagine she stuffs into the pretty heads of your young girl guests is almost vengeful, a sort of moral fire and sword doctrine. How far the lesson is wise is not for me to say. I don't permit myself to judge. I seem to see her very delightful disciples singeing themselves with the torches and cutting their fingers with the swords of Mrs. Fine's furnishing. My wife holds her opinions very seriously, murmured Fine suddenly. Yes, no doubt, I assented in a low voice as before, but it is a mere intellectual exercise. 
What I see is that in dealing with reality, Mrs. Fine ceases to be tolerant. In other words, that she can't forgive Mr. Barrell for being a woman and behaving like a woman. And yet this is not only reasonable and natural, but it is her only chance. A woman against the world has no resources but in herself. Her only means of action is to be what she is. You understand what I mean. Fine mumbled between his teeth that he understood. But he did not seem interested. What he expected of me was to extricate him from a difficult situation. I don't know how far credible this may sound to less solemn married couples, but to remain at variance with his wife seemed to him a considerable incident, almost a disaster. It looks as though I didn't care what happened to her brother, he said, and after all, if anything... I became a little impatient, but without raising my tone. What thing, I asked? The liability to get penal servitude is so far like genius that it isn't hereditary. And what else can be objected to the girl? All the energy of her deeper feelings, which she would use up vainly in the danger and fatigue of a struggle with society, may be turned into devoted attachment to the man who offers her a way of escape from what can only be a life of moral anguish. I don't mention the physical difficulties. Glancing at Fine out of the corner of one eye, I discovered that he was attentive. He made the remark that I should have said all this to his wife. It was a sensible enough remark, but I had given Mrs. Fine up. I asked him if his impression was that his wife meant to entrust him with a letter for her brother. No, he didn't think so. There were certain reasons which made Mrs. Fine unwilling to commit her arguments to paper. Fine was to be primed with them, but he had no doubt that if he persisted in his refusal she would make up her mind to write. She does not wish me to go unless with a full conviction that she is right, said Fine solemnly. She's very exacting, I commented, and then I reflected that she was used to it. Would nothing less do for once? You don't mean that I should give way, do you? asked Fine in a whisper of alarmed suspicion. As this was exactly what I meant, I let his fright sink into him. He fidgeted. If the word may be used of so solemn a personage, he wriggled. And when the horrid suspicion had descended into his very heels, so to speak, he became very still. He sat gazing stonily into space, bounded by the yellow, burnt-up slopes of the rising ground a couple of miles away. The face of the down showed the white scar of the quarry where not more than sixteen hours before Fine and I had been groping in the dark with horrible apprehension of finding under our hands the shattered body of a girl. For myself I had in addition the memory of my meeting with her. She was certainly walking very near the edge, courting a sinister solution. But now, having by the most unexpected chance come upon a man, she had found another way to escape from the world. Such world as was open to her, without shelter, without bread, without honour. The best she could have found in it would have been a precarious dole of pity diminishing as her years increased. The appeal of the abandoned child Flora to the sympathies of the Fines had been irresistible. But now she had become a woman, and Mrs Fine was presenting an implacable front to a particularly feminine transaction. I may say triumphantly feminine. It is true that Mrs. Fine did not want women to be women. Her theory was that they should turn themselves into unscrupulous, sexless nuisances. An offended theorist dwelt in her bosom somewhere. 
In what way she expected Flora de Barrel to set about saving herself from a most miserable existence I can't conceive, but I verily believe that she would have found it easier to forgive the girl an actual crime, say the rifling of the Bournemouth old lady's desk, for instance. And then, for Mrs. Fine was very much of a woman herself, her sense of proprietorship was very strong within her, and though she had not much use for her brother, yet she did not like to see him annexed by another woman, by a chit of a girl, and such a girl too. Nothing is truer than that in this world the luckless have no right to their opportunities, as if misfortune were a legal disqualification. Fine's sentiments, as they naturally would be in a man, had more stability. A good deal of his sympathy survived. Indeed, I heard him murmur, ghastly nuisance, but I knew it was of the integrity of his domestic accord that he was thinking. With my eyes on the dog lying curled up in sleep in the middle of the porch, I suggested in a subdued, impersonal tone, Yes, why not let yourself be persuaded? I never saw little fine less solemn. He hissed through his teeth in unexpectedly figurative style that it would take a lot to persuade him to push under the head of a poor devil of a girl quite sufficiently plucky, and snorted. He was still gazing at the distant quarry, and I think he was affected by that sight. I assured him that I was far from advising him to do anything so cruel. I am convinced he had always doubted the soundness of my principles, because he turned on me swiftly, as though he had been on the watch for a lapse from the straight path. Then what do you mean? That I should pretend? No, what nonsense. It would be immoral. I may, however, tell you that if I had to make a choice, I would rather do something immoral than something cruel. What I meant was that, not believing in the efficacy of the interference, the whole question is reduced to your consenting to do what your wife wishes you to do. That would be acting like a gentleman, surely, and acting unselfishly, too, because I can very well understand how distasteful it may be to you. Generally speaking, an unselfish action is a moral action. I'll tell you what. I'll go with you. He turned round and stared at me with surprise and suspicion. You would go with me, he repeated. You don't understand, I said, amused at the incredulous disgust of his tone. I must run up to town tomorrow morning. Let us go together. You have a set of travelling chessmen? His physiognomy, contracted by a variety of emotions, relaxed to a certain extent at the idea of a game. I told him that as I had business at the docks, he should have my company to the very ship. We shall beguile the way to the wilds of the east by improving conversation, I encouraged him. My brother-in-law is staying at an hotel, the Eastern Hotel, he said, becoming sombre again. I haven't the slightest idea where it is. I know the place. I shall leave you at the door with a comfortable conviction that you are doing what's right, since it pleases a lady and cannot do any harm to anybody whatever. You think so? No harm to anybody, he repeated doubtfully. I assure you it's not the slightest use, I said, with all possible emphasis, which seemed only to increase the solemn discontent of his expression. But in order that my going should be a perfectly candid proceeding, I must first convince my wife that it isn't the slightest use, he objected portentously. Oh, you casuist, I said and I said nothing more, because at that moment Mrs. Fine stepped out into the porch. We rose together at her appearance. Her clear, colourless, unflinching glance enveloped us both critically. I sustained the chill smilingly, but Fine stooped at once to release the dog. He was some time about it, 
Then, simultaneously with his recovery of upright position, the animal passed at one bound from profoundest slumber into most tumultuous activity. Enveloped in the tornado of his inane scurryings and barkings, I took Mrs. Fine's hand, extended to me woodenly, and bowed over it with deference. She walked down the path without a word. Fine had preceded her and was waiting by the open gate. They passed out and walked up the road, surrounded by a low cloud of dust raised by the dog gyrating madly about their two figures, progressing side by side with rectitude and propriety, and, I don't know why, looking to me as if they had annexed the whole countryside. Perhaps it was that they had impressed me somehow with the sense of their superiority. What superiority? Perhaps it consisted just in their limitations. It was obvious that neither of them had carried away a high opinion of me. But what affected me most was the indifference of the fine dog. He used to precipitate himself at full speed and with a frightful final upward spring upon my waistcoat at least once at each of our meetings. He had neglected that ceremony this time, notwithstanding my correct and even conventional conduct in offering him a cake. It seemed to me symbolic of my final separation from the fine household and I remembered against him how on a certain day he had abandoned poor Flora de Barrel, who was morbidly sensitive. I sat down in the porch, and, maybe inspired by secret antagonism to the fines, I said to myself deliberately that Captain Anthony must be a fine fellow. Yet, on the facts as I knew them, he might have been a dangerous trifler or a downright scoundrel. He had made a miserable, hopeless girl follow him clandestinely to London. It is true that the girl had written since, only Mrs. Fine had been remarkably vague as to the contents. They were unsatisfactory. They did not positively announce imminent nuptials as far as I could make out from her rather mysterious hints. But then her inexperience might have led her astray. There was no fathoming the innocence of a woman like Mrs. Fine, who, venturing as far as possible in theory, would know nothing of the real aspect of things. It would have been comic if she were making all this fuss for nothing. But I rejected this suspicion for the honour of human nature. I imagined to myself Captain Anthony is simple and romantic. It was much more pleasant. Genius is not hereditary, but temperament, maybe. And he was the son of a poet with an admirable gift of individualising, of etherealising the commonplace of making touching, delicate, fascinating the most hopeless conventions of the so-called refined existence. What I could not understand was Mrs. Fine's dog-in-the-manger attitude. Sentimentally, she needed that brother of hers so little. What could it matter to her, one way or another, setting aside common humanity, which would suggest at least a neutral attitude? Unless, indeed, it was the blind working of the law that in our world of chances the luckless must be put in the wrong somehow. And musing thus on the general inclination of our instincts towards injustice, I met unexpectedly, at the turn of the road as it were, a shape of duplicity. It might have been unconscious on Mrs. Fine's part, but her leading idea appeared to me to be not to keep, not to preserve her brother, but to get rid of him, definitely. She did not hope to stop anything. She had too much sense for that. Almost anyone out of an idiot asylum would have had enough sense for that. She wanted the protest to be made, emphatically, with Fine's fullest concurrence, in order to make all intercourse for the future impossible. Such an action would estrange the pair forever from the Fines. She understood her brother and the girl too. 
Happy together, they would never forgive that outspoken hostility, and should the marriage turn out badly, well, it would be just the same. Neither of them would be likely to bring their troubles to such a good profit of evil. Yes, that must have been a motive. The inspiration of a possibly unconscious Machiavellianism. Either she was afraid of having a sister-in-law to look after during the husband's long absences, or dreaded the more or less distant eventuality of her brother being persuaded to leave the sea, the friendly refuge of his unhappy youth, and to settle on shore, bringing to her very door this undesirable, this embarrassing connection. She wanted to be done with it, maybe simply from the fatigue of continuous effort in good or evil, which in the bulk of common mortals accounts for so many surprising inconsistencies of conduct. I don't know that I had classed Mrs. Fine in my thoughts amongst common mortals. She was too quietly sure of herself for that. But little Fine, as I spied him next morning, out of the carriage window, speeding along the platform, looked very much like a common flustered mortal who had made a very near thing of catching his train, the starting wild eyes, the tense and excited face, the distracted gait, all the common symptoms were there, rendered more impressive by his native solemnity which flapped about him like a disordered garment. Had he, I asked myself with interest, resisted his wife to the very last minute and then bolted up the road from the last conclusive argument as though it had been a loaded gun suddenly produced? I opened the carriage door, and a vigorous porter shoved him in from behind, just as the end of the rustic platform went gliding swiftly from under his feet. He was very much out of breath, and I waited with some curiosity for the moment he would recover his power of speech. That moment came. He said, "'Good morning,' with a slight gasp, remained very still for another minute, and then pulled out of his pocket the travelling chessboard, and holding it in his hand, directed at me a glance of inquiry. Yes, certainly, I said, very much disappointed. End of part one, chapter six, section two.